Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. It's very easy to be the self-righteous good girl and, and to have um, an idea of how everybody's consciousness should be and how everybody should think. And that was earlier years. And then it became, I had to become that thing that I always pointed the finger at. You know, that girl that was just, oh, God. Not her coming into the room. So right. then I had to go through that and finally come back to, these are all pieces. Right. These are pieces of me. And it's not about they're bad. It's just, um, you're made up of a lot of things. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Girl, the second track from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. David. Hey, Eve. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited, girl. We're going to talk about girl, girl. Um, I'm excited, too. This is one of my favorite tracks from Little Earthquakes, without a doubt. So I can't wait to just get right into it. We're in the thick of it now. I mean, we're not quite in the thick of it. Well, I think we are. We've made it through the first major single. Mm, And now we're getting mm -hmm. more into a deeper taste. It's thickening up. I would say it's thickening up. Our stew is thickening. Yeah. (laughs) It's uh, ready for a little seasoning, and soon we'll be in precious things, and that'll be the thick of it, I think. I think even this song is thick. Thick (laughs) with synth and regret and longing. Thick with meaning. Mm. When was the first time you heard Girl? You know, I bought the album for Crucify, and I think it was probably a long time before I listened to any song other than Crucify. I would just sort of stop, like, that's all I want, Crucify on repeat. And at some point, I'm sure I let it play into Girl and was like, no, winter, more appealing to me at the time, probably. So I don't really know the answer to that when I first absorbed the entire song. Teenagers are so weird. So fickle. So you would stop it before it gets a girl to listen to Crucify again yeah, and again? because I think at that point, I don't even know if I had any other albums that I listened to all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, I was certainly buying albums for whatever single I wanted at the time, and that was kind of it. So it was, I don't know, kind of a new concept to me that there might be an entire album of songs worth digging into <laughs> and that they might be as good, if not better, than the single. So I've never been anything but like a full album girl. I would get an album for whatever single. My very first CD that I ever purchased, well, I guess my very first piece of music that I ever purchased with my own money was Tiffany. <laughs> you know, the, I guess, solo debut. Of course, yeah. I saw him standing there. I think we're alone now. Could have been. Could have been. But her, her song, Spanish Eyes, I lived for that song. Mm-hmm. That became my favorite song on the tape. <laughs> on the tape. That became my favorite song on the tape. And... 
I knew in that moment that some of the hidden gems aren't even the singles, and I just became an album girl. I wish I'd known this. I was at a party where Tiffany gave a command performance and sang at a dinner party, so I should have requested Spanish Eyes if I would have known. Um, you should have requested a plus one, is what you should have requested. <laughs> I was the plus one. Oh, uh, well, you should have requested a plus two. Oh, you guys, we're so excited to be delving into Little Earthquakes. This is our second episode. <laughs> our second episode of Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Moving on to Girl. Okay, so Girl is the second track off of Little Earthquakes. Acoustic piano, vocal, and sampled strings and backgrounds by Tori Amos. With guitar and bass by Steve Caton. Drum and keyboard programming by Eric Ross. Recorded by Eric Ross. Mixed by John Kelly. And produced by Tori Amos and Eric Ross. Hmm. How many songs on this album does Tori have co-producer credit on? What a great question. She has co-producing credit on all four of the songs from the final batch. Right. Tear in Your Hand, Precious Things, Little Earthquakes, and Girl, Girl. And girl. Yeah. So they went back in. She wrote several more tracks, and they had to execute them with little to no money, right? So mm-hmm. do we think that's what's driving the lack of an outside producer here? It was a Possibly. do-it-yourself, do-it-yourself <laughs> yeah. moment. Right. Let's Make figure or break. it out. Yeah. And really, she proved herself. She made it, and she, and she broke it. Get it, girl. Interesting, because I think that Girl and precious things in particular are two of the more interesting productions yeah there seems to be a little bit more experimentation on those songs the use of the synth kind of the use of those distorted voices so it's interesting that those are the songs that uh tori and eric produced so yeah we can see what their fingerprints were or what their style was at the time and how that evolved because they have sole co-producer credit on under the pink so for 1991, this is, a, I think, a really experimental song. Really, really interesting, really lush. Really, mm-hmm. the production on it especially is really, really great. Out of the Gate, second track on the album, and she's already co-producer. Mm-hmm. Already a force to be reckoned with. And that's awesome. And at the time, not many women were producing their own music. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to say Kate Bush, but at the time. At the time, she was. I mean, mm-hmm. but she'd worked her way up to that. That was, you know, in 1989, 1990, you know, she'd been around for quite a while. So. Right. She had proven herself. So that's the 90s. (laughs) Quick 90s lesson. Well, I have a question for you. Oh, Lord. Do you think girl is the most oft-used word in Tori's body of work? Do you think there's any other word she has said or sung more often than the word girl? I kind of don't think so. I think the word that she has said the most is said. (laughs) Maybe. That's more of a live thing, though. Maybe. I think if you were to tally up all the girls, not only in the song lyrics, but in titles, you might be surprised. I was I think thinking it, about it. Is this our first girl we're getting from her? Nope. You're just an empty cage girl. Oh, if you kill the bird. <laughs> oh, my word. So if you are out there and you are listening to this episode and you feel like you want to tally up all the girls in Tori's catalog, we will get you your choice of t-shirt from the Coral Schnippert Collection. First person only. We want how many girls there are in song titles, in lyrics. If she says strange little girl, how many times she says girl in the song. First person to give us that information, you'll get your choice of t-shirt from toriamisdiscography.info. It's hard to hide a hundred girls in your songs, but I'll bet Tori's done that and more. Let's find out. Ain't that the truth? (laughs) What a good question. Should we just guess a number? I wouldn't know where to begin. 327 girls. Nice. I'll say 269. (laughs) (laughs) 
We'll find out. Hopefully someone wants to do that insane amount of work. Yeah. That would be fun. And are Good we question. are we um, applying prices right rules closest without going over of course, or just closest? David. Oh, sorry, you get you lowballed the girl count. One dollar, <laughs> one girl, <laughs> one girl. So, what do you think of this song? I love it. I think it's um, one of the darker songs, certainly on this album. It really, you know, it was being written and recorded so close to the end of the 1980s. And I think we can really hear that influence there with the synth. And there's something about it, something about the production of it that almost kind of sort of reminds me a little bit of a eurythmic song, Mm -hmm. like a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. So I love that. I mean, that kind of scratches the right itch for me anyway but it's also very unique a unique sound for tori i think right and i can i can definitely see that sort of influence that eurythmics influence not necessarily specifically the eurythmics but that sound that Mm -hmm. synth that vibe that sort of darkness Mm -hmm. which is kind of pulsating through those four tracks that she did at the end that she so she put together the album it was rejected she had to go back and do more songs and those four little earthquakes tear in your hand girl and precious things all have that kind of darkness Mm -hmm. And I think that's really fantastic and all rhythmic and all just a little different. Agreed. And a a testament too to the kind of work you can do when you're pushed. That she was being challenged. She went back in to write these songs to get them on the album or hopefully get the album accepted. And I would say they're four of the strongest songs on the album, period. Mm -hmm. So coming in, squeaking in there at the end, right? Yeah. Kind of like maybe arguably Donut Song did. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the strongest batch is... uh, Squeaky squeaky end. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> like pancakes. The like first cookies. one is never great. <laughs> the cookies, the first batch is always burned at yeah. the bottom. It's always kind Working of a throwaway. The... Sweet dreams. No, thank you. <laughs> Should we talk about our guests? How many girls we got? We got one girl, the girl of all girls. Mm. The girl of our dreams. <laughs> we have Danica Lamb, formerly Danica Knox, a staple on the Tori Miss Tour scene, and a girl super fan. Danica and I have known each other forever. Danica and David even longer that crazy it is crazy god well let's get started shall we all right let's take a little break let's do a little cover of girl let's just get it let's just get it i think that it's time i think that it's girl's time Mm. it's our time girl your time has come of course we'd like to say thank you to shay stymack and jen buchanan for putting together our show notes for this episode thanks ladies this is the vitamin string quartet doing a very gorgeous cover of girl self-involved on this record little earthquakes because i wasn't able to look at anything socially until i dealt with my own stuff and i'm still dealing with it but i was at a point 
when I started writing that record where I hadn't even looked at myself. Everything was just fine and dandy. Mm. As if you would have met me five years ago and I ended up on my kitchen floor just because I hadn't dealt with the Munich issue. I hadn't dealt with my belief systems and all those things. So I had to look at my own self and my own prejudices before I'm ready to go out and say, hey, this is kind of my view on this. You have to clean your own closets a bit and it's a constant cleaning. Mm. You know, I'm always trashing my closet so I always have to go in there and go, so what have I done this week? So this girl appears on Little Earthquakes' is track two. That's the very first time she made an appearance in the Tori Amos canon. Yes. Yes. Go on. And basically that's it. I mean, it appears on the live to Venus and Back still orbiting Tori Amos' first official live release, which... Thank God it does, because it never again sees the light of day on a live release, at least until now. And it appears again on Tori Amos's 2006 collection, A Piano. A Piano. And then on the Little Earthquakes Deluxe Remastered Edition, 25 years later. Reissue. Once, twice, four times a girl. Four times. That's it. Is <laughs> yeah. it? It's crazy. When we have just come off of doing the Crucify episode, which has been everywhere. We couldn't shake Crucify. We didn't even talk about all the 90s compilations it was on. It was on songs of the 90s and all these like strange things that you can find on Spotify. Just these compilations. Girl, not so much. No. Crazy, right? She's not showy. Why do you suppose that is? Because in some ways, not that I would say that Girl's a stronger song than Crucify, but Girl is as compelling as Crucify in different ways. I agree with that. I always sort of assumed that Tori didn't relate to it after a certain period of time. She just wasn't in that same place. So mm-hmm. she, you know, she wasn't performing it. But I also think that the the sentiment of it is very similar to Crucify. We'll dig into it as we get into the the line by line and really start to talk about the song. But I think at the heart, it comes from a place of being eager to please other people and not knowing exactly who you are. So I think there's a lot of similarities there in terms of subject matter. And between the two, she just went with Crucify because it was a single maybe and sort of it's more immediate to the ear than Girl. So I feel like Girl just kind of fell by the wayside maybe not intentionally but girl got left behind a little bit it's definitely an album cut it never was a single and i think that does have a lot to do with it why we don't see it on compilations and why we don't see it across the catalog but you're right there it is accessing i think that very a very similar uh thematic idea the same as crucify was um, told differently because they they sound very different you know one i think crucify is very straightforward whereas i think girl with the production is very it's almost a metaphor but it's not it's a very clear melody right it's a very clear thought and idea in this song she's been everybody else's girl maybe one day she'll be her own that's very clear Mm -hmm. it is sort of similar to crucify's idea i agree with you david and in terms of sequencing on the album it's wedged between two signature songs two power or two hits. well-known songs two super so, ballads unfortunately i think people just kind of forget about it or it gets glossed over as strong a song as i think it is so. yeah it is a very strong song but maybe that does have something to do with it because mm-hmm. crucify was a mega single <laughs> i'm coining that tm <laughs> and silent all these years was a mega single as well so yeah. you're right maybe that also has something to do with it and then immediately after that precious things of course not a single but a banger it's a, a fan favorite it's, it's definitely a banger 
It's an embarrassment of riches, as you say, in that first four tracks of this album being so amazing. It is. Oh, one's got to be left behind. Only uh, because you can't hold them all. I remember one of the write-ups for the Little Earthquakes reissue. It might have been Pitchfork. Um, I'm not sure. But the the journalist was revisiting the album and described it as stacked AF. Ooh. But it really is. It comes out guns a-blazing with yeah. all these amazing songs. So. Yeah. It really does. These songs are iconic. Should we start with some quotes? Are we ready for the quotes? I love a quote. I love a good quote. This one's from What's in Birmingham, 21st of December, 1991. And Tori says, it's about not listening to yourself, but to everyone's ideas of how you should be as a person. You have to be able to know yourself to accept what you did. Otherwise, you end up wearing their opinions like jumpers. What do you think of that quote from Tori? That was from What's on Birmingham, the 21st of December, 1991. What do you think of that quote? I want to dig in a little bit to to accept what you did. What do you think she's referring to there? My impulse is to say kind of the same thing that she said in Crucify, to own how you had a hand in selling your soul. For me, I have to believe that this song is very steeped in the YKTR experience. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what she's referring to, like sort of letting her image be molded and her music and becoming something that didn't feel authentic. But because she was hungry for success or acceptance or whatever, she played a part in letting that happen. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened without her consent, that's for sure. Yeah. And to accept that, to accept that she consented to it, Mm -hmm. at the very least, if not went and ran with it, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and maybe that's, I don't want to say this song is solely about the Why Can't Troy Read experience because I don't think that it is, but I do think that was a huge part of what inspired it. So maybe that's yet another reason why she didn't perform it very often, even during this era and on Under the Pink, that she was just kind of wanting to kind of forget that that whole thing had happened and she was already kind of over it and onto a new phase of her life. So she just didn't feel close to the song and it took a while for it to take on new meaning, maybe. Mm-hmm. I agree. That could absolutely be a reason. I think also that coupled with kind of the mysterious nature with how it even became a song, which we'll talk about here in just a second, has a lot to do with maybe why she didn't play it too. Mm. So, but the idea that if it is referencing the YKTR days, by this time in her career when she's released Little Earthquakes and she's redefining who she is by on her own terms, by her own standards, I'll show you what I really do and what I really am. You want to read this quote from the Little Earthquake songbook, David? I do. The beginnings were composed on an old upright piano in Virginia at her parents' farm. It's horribly out of tune, which is one of the things I love about it. The chorus was written, but that's about it. I threw it down on tape and forgot about it. Months later, I was cleaning the house, truly a happening, and was throwing tapes away. Eric intercepted this one out of a pile. I was chopping onions in the kitchen. He brought it in and said, listen, I did. (laughs) Um, First of all, how offensive that her parents would keep an out-of-tune piano on their farm. I know. My God. Knowing who their daughter is. Yeah. Do they know who she is? (laughs) Out-of-tune mom. Amazing, though, that Tori could have completely never composed this song because she threw away the tape. And no one would have known about it, which makes me think, how many things has she thrown away that were gems that we never... Hundreds. Hundreds. Thousands. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. Skirts on Fire, for example. Oh, I know. Learn to Fly. Uh, Where are these Berlin gems? Wall. Berlin Wall. 
I love this idea that Eric really was like, stop, listen to this. This is really good. And yeah, you're good all the time. And so you probably means nothing to you, but this is great. And how labor intensive that process. It's not like if that was happening today and he could just sort of buzz through all the files on our computer. He had to like put the tape in (laughs) and go through, you know, 60 minutes per each side of the Maxell (laughs) to find the gold. Good on him though. Deserves production credit for that alone. I think that's really interesting. And I love that. I mean, I don't know how to say this properly, but I I can feel like it was composed on an out-of-tune piano. Mm -hmm. There's something like in the cordage of it that makes me feel very... That's very unique. I don't know what I'm tuning into. And maybe it's just that I've read this quote years ago and it's just like it's there. I agree with you. And for some reason, I always picture the upright piano from the album artwork. The song isn't, you know, a rich, lush, classically influenced under the pink song. I think mm-hmm. it almost begs to be played on kind of an old beaten up yeah. childhood piano. Yeah. So, yeah. Putting the pieces together a little bit here and reading this quote about the song almost being lost and her just having the chorus down on tape. I'm starting to think that this song was very slippery and it was hard for her to sort of birth it into the world. She had pieces of it. So this is one of the songs maybe that she worked on over a prolonged period of time as opposed to it just coming out in, you know, a completed state. And she also tells a story about what led to Thoughts, the B-side Thoughts. And she, she specifically says that she was recording Girl and she couldn't get a take of it. She just couldn't do it. So I almost feel like this is one of the songs that just doesn't want to come. Mm-hmm. And it's either hard for her to play for some reason or connect with. And maybe that's yet another reason why it doesn't appear very often live or it didn't at the time. Well, when I said earlier, like, perhaps the reason she doesn't play it that often is how it was born is that, yeah, it like it's something that she put on a tape and kind of forgot about and never necessarily felt connected to and only in a pinch when it's like, oh God, we need four more songs Mm. for this album. She's like, well, I got this thing and then they worked it up and it was maybe born in the studio and you're right, coupled with she can't get a take of it. So thoughts, the B-side thoughts, which we'll talk about at some point, the B-side thoughts is is from the recording of Girl, the recording session of Girl, which is why you have that. She's been everybody else's girl line Mm -hmm. in there. Right. So coupled with that, maybe you're right. Even though it's an amazing song and how can you compose something so wonderful and not feel like completely connected to it? But perhaps that's the case. I think this girl has momentary bouts of amnesia over and over again. She forgets the song exists and then it comes back and then it becomes almost a staple and she plays it often and then it disappears again for years at a time. So I feel like it continues to circle back and she reestablishes a relationship with it that's always different for her. And I don't know what that is exactly, but that seems to be the case. So She had a very close relationship with Eric at the time. She had a very close relationship with Steve Caton. They'd known each other for years at that point, and I just feel like it was the magic in that moment. You know, that one stormy night in Los Angeles where they're like, we gotta make more music, and we need to do it today, and I have $12, (laughs) and yeah. It was a rainy, stormy night. I love it. Lightning's crashing. (laughs) Eric reached for the shoebox full of tapes. Their hands met, and they pulled Girl out, like the sword from the stone, Uh. publishing. (laughs) This is from Melody Maker on the 16th of November, 1991. 
Tori says, I feel I have so much in my closet to clean. For all these years, I felt like all these different people at a dinner party. When you've got the virgin and the whore sitting next to each other at dinner, they're likely to judge each other harshly. But it's never about good girl and bad girl, right and wrong, good and evil. You can't have your body without your shadow. I've stopped judging myself harshly. Now I can wear these different hats. But essentially, it's the same girl singing. Now, what do you think about that in terms of why she doesn't play it? Maybe she's grown out of it. Maybe, but Tori has been so consistent with her messaging from day one, right? Here, out of the gate again, we have the virgin and the whore. Mm -hmm. She loves that. You gotta marry those Marys, girl. Yeah. (laughs) She is nothing if not herself. And I think she's so unique that it's impossible to put her into like a Lita Ford box. And that's why it didn't work. (laughs) You know, it's not authentic. So let's talk about this part. Now I can wear these different hats, but essentially it's the same girl singing. Isn't that a way of saying I'm being everyone else's girl or being different things? Isn't that interesting? Kind of. I I interpret that as she felt sort of compelled to compartmentalize aspects of her personality that she'd been made to feel guilty about. And she's sort of processing that guilt. So now she feels more comfortable embracing all these separate sides of herself. Not that she's like playing a role necessarily. She knows they exist and they are what they are. Right. Interesting. Do you feel that way? Mm, I never. Yes, I guess that I do. (laughs) I certainly had parts of my personality that I felt like I had to compartmentalize from my family or whoever. And I feel like I'm sort of showing up in the world authentically and whole at this point in my life let's hope so anyway how about you same i mean in my past i have compartmentalized definitely you know kept my tour life separate from my theater life separate from my family life separate from my love life and never the never the two shall meet um but now it's like whatever i don't have time (laughs) (laughs) i know this is from the guardian november 1991 do you want to read this quote Yeah. Tori anesthetized her magical side, moved to LA and had not quite a clinical nervous breakdown, in quotes, at 20. Then I faced up to the fact that since the age of seven or whatever, all I'd been doing was trying to please other people rather than myself. From the age of seven. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got to be pretty self-aware to be a child prodigy in the Peabody at five. Because I can't remember being a child of seven. I can't remember when I was seven or five or anything, but I think if you have such a formative event like that, you remember it. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine like feeling that way since seven. It's already crushing enough to feel that way since 13. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess when you have this gift, which it is, but when other people perceive you as having this gift, they also throw this weight of responsibility on you that you'd better use it and do well with it and not throw it away. So I guess that's where this is coming from, right? Like, I'm five and I'm just a kid, but I'm also kind of a genius and people are expecting great things from me already. And how do I satisfy them? How do I please them all? And especially being a kid, that need to please is much greater, I think. Mm. Because if you're 13 and everybody wants something from you, you can honestly say like, you know, fuck off. I want to do what I want. And you're a teenager and that's how teenagers are. But if you're a kid, you really just want to please the people that you love. There's no other option. Mm. So maybe that does stick with you. Obviously, it does stick with you on such a level. Let's listen to this. This is from Westwood One. This is a radio interview that Tori did on February 27th, 1992. So early in the Little Earthquakes promo cycle, she did this. So let's take a listen. It all goes back to dealing with yourself. Because when you do, your needs change. You don't look at things the same way. You move, you change your life. You call different things to you when you really start looking at yourself. 
can be an incredibly painful process. And then you've got to giggle. You've got to have some moments of laughter in it. Or it'll just choke you to death. I mean, enough depression for one day. <laughs> you know, I don't find my record depressing. There are moments of incredible um, acknowledgement of when I've been not true to myself, when I listen to everybody else. But i got to take responsibility for that. So what? So what? Okay. I'm going to move on from that. Yeah, a lot of that concerns her son, too. She's been everybody else's girl, and she's been her own girl. And it's like, about where you find to love me the way I love you. It will winter that I think when you're going to love you as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah, that concerns It seems like in a lot of them, it's because you've realized that now you're coming back around to to doing it, to being your own girl, and that you had to go through a big process. Oh, it's not depressing. Although people might think, oh, well, it's depressing. You actually keep listening. No, I don't see it as depressing at all. It's like looking at, at your life. You can't look at it as, oh, God, I've made so many mistakes. You've got to say, okay, I've had some real interesting highways. Some have had gravel on my road. I haven't had this smooth tar on my road. I've gone through some bridges that have broken a bit, and I've had to, you know, pull the car across with a, a line on it so that it could barely make it across. And I think that you can't be ashamed of your past. I mean, if we really got down to it, so what if you were Swin and did have babies on pikes when you were a Viking and terrorizing villages? I mean, you know, maybe you're even now not into that. You want to do something different, what, you're never going to change? That all you would have to be ashamed of is if you didn't learn from those other things, you know, the past. Well, yeah, and then you're just completely unconscious. So when I say that you're just uh, numb, and you're not even thinking of your past as, as anything to learn from, the past is an incredible gift. So what if you were a bully? Okay, so what? So maybe you were an abuser. So, you know, you take responsibility, you look at it, you admit it, you accept that part of yourself, you acknowledge it, you don't run from it, you don't make excuses for it, you do it. And you don't keep wearing it like the letter A. I'm not, I'm not into that, um, no scarlet letters, although they're worn by so many people all the time. It's we really have an incredible hate for ourselves as a people. That's where it comes from. You, you don't, you're not going to forgive yourself. We're so hard on ourselves. And then they're, the, then they're the people that choose not to be hard on themselves, but everybody else around them. But it's still, it comes from the same place. They just turn it around. They just, the pendulum swings the other way. And you know, they put other people under their thumb and try and squash them. Squash the baby birds, so to speak, because theirs has been squashed. Yeah, or they, or they keep walking in and say, squash me. They don't say that, but it's, you feel like you don't deserve better, so you stay in that situation where people just um, use you, really treat you. You're their, their whipping person.
But then you have to ask, do I keep giving them the whip to whip me with? So that's, that's in situations you find with your friends, you know. Why does this person keep treating me this way? And it all goes back to just going, where am I at with myself? I want to talk about this. What she just said there, squash the baby bird, so to speak, because theirs has been squashed. It's interesting coming out of Crucify. Obviously, the first thing I want to do is refer to the bird. You're just an empty cage girl. If you kill the bird, squash the bird. The bird is the soul, right? We agree? Mm-hmm. Okay, so interesting that that is coming out when talking about... She's not necessarily talking specifically about girl, but I think that theme of the whole album, obviously, is coming from that place. And it's very a clear through line through Little Earthquakes. Let's talk about these quotes from 2009. So there are so many quotes out there. As we mentioned in the Crucify episode, we only want, (laughs) there are so many things out there. And these songs have been around for years. So we couldn't possibly get them all. But this is from Rolling Stone, the track by track guide to Little Earthquakes, December 18th, 2009. Why did they do this in 2009? Because nothing good came out in 2009 except for abnormally attracted to sin and midwinter graces dory says it's not an aggressive fight it's an internal fight and when you need other people's approval when you walk in a room you're everybody's or anybody's girl when you don't need that anymore it's because you have an understanding and an agreement with yourself on who you want to be and when i say who you want to be that's going to evolve but at least you've got to get your palette your paint your canvas and say i'm not choosing to tell this story which is doing anything to have success I don't want that kind of success. Like you're choosing to be the kind of person you want. And that's when you don't need that approval from anyone. That's like the lesson. Mm. That's the success. Yeah. And I think that's certainly a challenge to get to that place because sometimes it's subtle, but I do think there's always a need to make, if not win people's approval to make them comfortable. Right. I do like how she says it, how, it's as easy as walking into a room. You're everybody's or anybody's girl. Like how easy it is to give yourself away for the approval of others. It's mm. not as complicated as like having to change who you are for the love of a man. It's as simple as walking into a room and needing the approval of the people in the room. Mm. But you could also flip that around and make it kind of liberating. Like every time I walk in a room, I have an opportunity to be a new person to this group who doesn't know me. So who am I going to be today? <laughs> I can and, sort of let go of my old story and start over. And you can decide. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Is that how you read that quote? No, but <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's possible to it's sort of flip possible. that and make it a positive thing and not say, you know, look at like I'm walking into this room and trying to please all of these people or meet their expectations. She goes on, on in the Rolling Stone interview to say, girl was being clear with myself that I didn't want that, didn't need that because what I was achieving really hadn't been done in that way because folk women were being embraced. There was a style for them, but straddling the piano, she says straddling, but straddling that piano and making the piano a viable instrument with songs being built around it, that was gone since the Carole King days. This was a very different thing because this wasn't the blues R&B approach and Kate Bush was much more electronica. And so I knew then that I had a big fight ahead of me and that I couldn't be anybody's. I had to be my own. Good. She'd already tried being everybody else's girl. Right. Didn't work. Didn't work. Never does. Yeah. Never could, never did. We all know how amazing Tori's B-sides were for Little Earthquakes. For, you know, she's amazing. And some of 
the favorite songs are the B-sides, some of her favorites, some of our favorites. It's just really surprising to me that none of the B-sides really were album tracks. You think that if you're trying to promote an album, there's a case to be made for putting some album songs as the B-side. Yeah, you could still have your amazing B-sides, but like one or two album tracks even. But I guess they aired towards the collectibles idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, Silent All These Years and Mean A Gun notwithstanding, because those were back-to-back, but... All these extra songs, if you think of the winter single, there was no album tracks, things like that, the Crucify single. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like they knew right away that her fan base was or was going to be rabid, and they were trying to incentivize, I guess, purchasing those singles. Um, Maybe they were kind of preaching to the choir a little bit. Like, we don't need to put... Yeah, we don't need to put an album track on the single because people who are buying the single probably already have it. Yeah. So that just came to mind because, you know, in researching this episode, looking through the collectibles book, it's impossible to find girl anywhere. The girl's doing her own thing. Girl? Track two. Girl? Where you at, girl? <laughs> do you want to do the line by line? I sure do. From the shadow she calls, and in the shadow she finds a way. So I always look at this ever since I knew the story about her, like, finding that tape. Then it became a song... I kind of look at this as sort of the entry point in that way, like the tape from the shadows called, Mm. the refrain called, and she found a way. And that's how I look at this. Ever since I heard that story, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Does that make sense? The song really wanted to be in the world, and Tori was doing her best, maybe unintentionally, to block it. She was girl blocking. She being an entity, right? Being girl. Do we agree? Yes. At this point, yes. I think it holds maybe a little more than that, but okay, great. Yeah. And in the shadow she crawls. We need to make note of the fact that this is the second song on the album that's referenced crawling. Yes, crucified. Oh my god, live version. Crawling her way back. But this one, she's crawling from the beginning, from mm. studio version. Mm-hmm. Mm. And in the shadow she crawls, clutching her faded photograph. My image under so I want to ask you, who is the she that Tori is singing about? And at what point in time does that she exist? If that makes sense. Okay. Good question. I think she's singing to herself. Agreed. Or her true self, like the little core inside, like the real self, you know? Mm-hmm. And I guess from what time, I've just assumed that it was her younger self or her baby, her true inner child, if you will. What do you think? I agree. Kind of like we were saying about Crucify, I feel like a lot of the songs on this album, particularly these first two, I guess, come from a very young place. Mm -hmm. And not just because it's called Girl and that implies youth, I guess, but that she's really singing to or about her very young self at six or seven Mm -hmm. who felt the need to please everyone. Like, I do think that's true, but I've been sort of like reassessing the song in preparation for talking about it, I guess. And I almost feel like present day Tori is standing there in the present, in the middle, I guess, looking both backwards and forwards along her own timeline. And that the she in this case clutching the faded photograph is kind of like the more fully realized version of herself in the future that's looking back at the other two, if that makes sense. So the voice is coming from the future. Right. The she that's clutching the faded photograph is the older Tori. And in the photograph, 
is the young Tori. Exactly. Okay, interesting. Let's listen to that stanza again, okay? And in the shadow she crawls Clutching her faded photograph My image under her thumb So now that you've said that, I'm feeling that from in the shadow is the old Tori. She's calling for her true self. In the shadow, she finds a way. So maybe there's two different she's. In the shadow, she's calling. So in the shadow, young Tori's finding a way to get to her. Because old Tori's calling. Young Tori's like, I, I, I'm needed. The girl is needed. And she's, she's crawling because it goes from call to crawl. Mm-hmm. So she's crawling through the shadows to get to her with the faded photograph to combine the woman and the girl to complete the person. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I got chills. <laughs> Way to go, Tori. I guess to clarify, I totally agree with your what you're saying. I guess to me, maybe this is exactly what you just said, so pardon me if it is. The, the she in the first little stanza here calling is the future self. Yeah. And the one crawling is the younger is self. Is the younger self. Yeah. Yes. Okay, just making I sure. I love it. Yeah. I love that it's two different she's. Mm-hmm. Ooh. What is that message for my heart? And let's point out that we go from she, third person pronouns, she, her, to my heart. She's crawling, and I think it confirms that both sides are her. Mm-hmm. Yes, with a message for my heart. Yes. My confirms that the she is, in fact, me. She is I, and we are she. Exactly. And we I are am she. me. We are she, and I am her. Yes, with a message for my heart. Yes, with a message for my heart. Getting very literal here, but the way she repeats yes with a message for my heart twice, that just sort of shores up for me that the idea that that message is coming from both of them, mm. the older and the younger. And the younger, the message from the younger is essentially a cry for help or I need you. And the message from the future self is I've made it. You're going to make it here at some point. And here's how you're going to do it. Like kind of reaching a hand out to the child self, pulling her forward or pulling her out. I love that, which is slightly different than what I was thinking, because I'm thinking about her in the future from in the shadow. She calls as if she needs help. Not that she's complete, that if Tori doesn't figure this out now, that that frail old woman that still doesn't know herself clutching the photograph of her young self will still need to call out for help in the future. Mm. I think it's just clarifying which which one we think is the complete self. Like you're, you're saying that the woman in the future has figured it all out and she's reaching out a hand to the young girl to guide her through. Whereas I'm saying the young girl is the complete most realized version and that she's lost it along the way and that the old woman needs to get back that girl. So it's just like, we're looking at it differently. I don't know. I like your version better. Yes, with a message for my I think the message is that she's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. And that clarity that's in the, that sentence is so clear. We said it earlier. It's like straightforward. She's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. There's no interpreting it. It's not metaphorical. Mm-hmm. It's not shrouded in mystery. It's very confessional. That's why this album got that sort of reputation for being a confessional album. 
because it lines like this. She's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. Mm-hmm. I think that's the message. And I think if you've never heard that before, I think it's so easy to identify with that sentiment because we always give so much of ourselves away to, and we're always so eager to please and so n- needing to please and needing to be accepted. You talked about that on the last episode, your need for approval, that it's so easy to identify with that sentiment that when you hear it, it's like, oh, I have been everybody else's girl. Maybe that's the message. It's like, maybe one day you'll be your own, but it's up to you to to make that happen. Everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be Why do you think Tori chose to write this from the perspective of someone who is observing this happen as opposed to a more active participant? Because it would have been just as easy for her to write, I've been everybody else's girl. In the same way in Crucify, she doesn't write, every finger in the room is pointing at her, which she could have. So I'm just wondering why she's a little more removed. Mm, Interesting question. Yeah. My thought, without having thought about that before, you always come in with such good questions, David. (laughs) I didn't know this was going to be on the test, though, so I didn't study. I didn't either. This is I'm seriously just like <laughs> going off the cuff here. That's a really good question. I feel she's seeing it through a lens of the past or the future, whichever you decide. But she's seeing it through a lens. I agree. And I guess I kind of go back to what I was saying, where the she that is singing this song is kind of in stasis mm-hmm. in the middle. And she feels disconnected from both the future and the past self. She's moved past or has just moved past the girl who's been everybody else's but she's not quite to the point where let's say she wants to be right so she's kind of standing there watching watching this and sort of commenting on it knowing that she's in the middle of the journey maybe i think that one day she'll be her own is a much more graceful elegant and timeless statement than maybe one day i'll be my own Mm -hmm. because that keeps you there forever whereas the she can be anybody and it's a lot more poetic i agree maybe the answer is far more simple and it just for lack of a better way to put it sounded better Mm -hmm. to her that's also possible but i agree with what you said earlier about it being her and stasis the girl in the middle why is it called girls well regardless (laughs) regardless of her reason whatever it may have been for going with a she as opposed to i it makes the song a lot more rich let's say right i agree and allows the listener even to find their place in it, maybe yeah. a little yeah. bit more than it would have otherwise. So. And the doorway they stay, and life is violence filled with water. Who is they? We're taking it from the personal out into the world, and there's, another, there's other people out there. And it's very sinister already, I feel, right? It is sinister. There's a shadowy figures watching from doorways. And this is before we've gotten to those kind of ominous voices coming in. Yeah. But this song is literally haunting, I guess, in a way that a lot of hers aren't. There's something eerie and ominous about it for sure. So, but who are the they? I almost want to go to, again, young Tori at the Peabody crushed under the weight of these imposing figures with all their expectations violin obviously is a musical instrument it's not her musical instrument but filling with water drowning filling with tears maybe well i like the idea of drowning the musical instrument the Mm -hmm. voice drowning you know you're suffocating almost you can't scream you're you can't make your music kind of like the cutting out the flute from the throat of the loon it's just a way to impede the music making or impede mm. the voice. Violins fill with water. And not only are the violins 
filling with water and drowning, the people that are making it happen or watching it happen don't move to help. They just right. stand in the doorway. Watching. Continuing down that sinister path, like these beautiful flowers, the bluebells, which is just a great word anyway, and very poetic image. She liked it. She capitalized it. Yeah. It's a very poetic <laughs> image to have these flowers screaming and it's, and the people in the doorway won't go away. Right. That's how you read this. I'd actually always read it or heard it as she, Tori, whoever, kind of fleeing to a field of bluebells and just sort of screaming, trying to scream it out. Not that the flowers themselves were literally screaming, but... Okay, okay, keep going with that. Just, I don't... Yeah, again, this young self just needing a moment to herself away from all the pressure and expectation and like her safe place was this field of bluebells where all she could do was try to scream to release all of it and even that wasn't Getting them out of her head. Right. Oh, I like it. Screams from the bluebells I always looked at bluebells as being a metaphor for girls, as being another way of saying the girls. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe I clued into that because it is capitalized in the lyric booklet, but also because of the word bell. And if you drown, you turn blue. So if the violin's filling with water, it's just a bunch of drowned girls. So screams from the bluebells, these people who are, you're hurting, the girls won't even make them go away. Mm. Well, I'm not. This was the literal first line in all of Little Earthquakes that I was like, yes, this album is my life. <laughs> I, I thought that was such a racy line. Racy how? That seems to say to me that there's something sexual about that line to you. Yeah, there was something sexual about that line to me. I don't know why. When it could be, now that I'm assessing it as we're doing this episode, I'm like, oh, she, maybe she means just skinned my knees. But she didn't say I'm not 13. 13, and you, if you've got cuts on your knees at 13, you're playing around, climbing on the rocks, climbing on the trees, you got cuts on your knees. But if you got cuts on your knees when you're 17, it's because you've been acquiescing and bowing down to someone in some way or groveling or changing who you are for something. That's I don't know why that was always such a racy line to me, but it was a line that stuck out from the very beginning. While I'm not 17, but I've cuts on my knees. Like I should have learned my lesson when I was younger. 17 was the time that it's okay to have cuts on your knees and to learn. And I'm not there. I'm 30 and I still have those cuts on my knees. What am I doing wrong? Falling down as the winter takes one more cherry tree. Yeah, then she goes on to say falling down, which, you know, leads one to believe that the source of the cuts is falling down repeatedly. Mm -hmm. I never necessarily read any self-harm happening here, but I guess that's possible, but I've never interpreted it that way. Me either, really. To me, that was always like the age she chose was kind of arbitrary. It just definitely signified youth, even though 17, like you were saying, is not 13. 17 <laughs> fits better. It might have just fit into the rhyme yeah, scheme better. Totally. 100%. But yeah. for some reason, that line just really resonated with me. Yeah. Yes. To me, yes. That's where it was always coming from. Just being trapped, even though you're so beyond childhood that she still hasn't really moved beyond it, that she's still kind of trapped in that place falling, trying to meet other people's expectations, not growing up the way she wants to or thought she would have, not 
achieving what she would have thought she would have by this point in her life, maybe. And it definitely clues into like the innocence being 17 and then not being 17. What's the difference is that you've either have learned a lot of lessons or should have learned a lot of lessons, right? Yes. So it implies that 17 is very in, in, in a very innocent time. And I can't help but feel like <laughs> the way I'm feeling right now is coloring my read of these lyrics here. But again, it seems like being trapped in youth or adolescence, thinking that you would have learned more or done more by now. And maybe I'm going to miss my chance because the winter is coming to take one more cherry tree. Like maybe I've missed the boat or this is as good as it's ever going to get. Or maybe this is all, all there's going to be for me. It's kind of how I read that. Same. She's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. What a great refrain. I could sing that line over and over again. Like, that's just a great line. How did no one else write this line before 1991? <laughs> she barely managed to do it. Or when she did, she tried to throw it away. So <laughs> I, know. I know. I love that there's no promise, really, no resolve. And again, maybe that's because the voice is coming from present day Tori, who doesn't have all the answers yet. But it's a maybe, maybe one day. Not like, oh, he'll definitely be your own. Yeah, or one I, already, day. I was once everyone else's girl, but uh-huh. now I'm not. I felt like that line was truly profound because it is so such a simple idea that I'd never heard stated before that it was like, yes, of course, I've been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day I'll be my own when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, again, that's why I feel like that's a huge part, of course, of why this album appealed to so many of us at this age which is that's exactly how you're feeling, but you don't have quite the words for it. That's someone older, for example, the age Tori was when she was articulating all of this at that point to put into words. So you hear it and you're not even aware necessarily that that's how you're feeling until you hear it reflected back to you. And then you're like, yes, everybody else's girl. And it does seem so profound to you because it is, but especially when you're 12 Mm -hmm. or 13, 17, maybe. What does that mean? To me, that's really evocative of something kind of primal and untamed and powerful, diminishing or narrowing this giant, magnificent rushing river with all this power and potential um, kind of dwindling and becoming nothing. Again, maybe that's kind of young Tori who was supposed to be and do so much sort of not living up to that. I feel like that's probably pretty accurate. Um, the idea that Rushing River is that it is this entity that you that has so much power and threading so thin, these rivers are becoming like little streams or filtered down to a stream. They're threading down to a stream. It's funny that you asked me to include limitation with those two lines. How come? I think if I were just to look at Russian River's thread so thin or the way that they're sung, those seem like kind of separate thoughts and then we just get limitation kind of voiced as its own word but i don't know to me that just sort of clarifies that idea of like something with a lot of potential being limited and slowly becoming less and less of what it was or could be i've always heard limitation as being part of the next line (laughs) 
that limitation is dreaming of being something wild, that she is limitation. She is, she's limited herself. Limitation dreams with the flying pigs as its own thought, just separated in, I mean, it wasn't separated in the booklet because it was in a square. It's written in a square. So limitation dreams with the flying pigs as thunder wishes that it could be the snow kind of idea. Are my thoughts crazy like flying pigs? <laughs> well, no, but the expression when one hears flying pigs, it's always, well, when pigs fly, right? Yeah. Like that's unlikely. So to me, the this wildest is... dreams though. Think of it like that. The wildest dreams that you can have. Right. Success. Rockstar success. That's her wildest dream. Right. B- being able to play her music. And make a living at it. Right. What a, fl- what a flying pig at this point in her career doesn't seem attainable. Right. And I feel like, again, to me, that's this is coming from a place of already missed the boat. Of like, my dreams now are so unlikely. They're yeah. as likely as pigs flying. Yeah. My dreams have been relegated off with the flying pigs mm-hmm. where they're never going to happen. So dreams with the flying pigs, I see. Whereas I'm saying limitation dreams with the flying pigs as one full sentence. Mm-hmm. We're saying the same thing, <laughs> ultimately, but... What does that mean? Turbid blue is such a pleasing coupling of words Turbid to me. Turbid blue? Yeah. Is that a real color? I think it should be a lipstick or something. Maybe not blue lipstick, a nail polish. Yeah. Turbid blue. Turbid blue. <laughs> like an eyeshadow. Uh-huh. Turbid blue. Is it a real color though? Well, turbid means like murky or lacking clarity. Yeah. I don't think any blue is really described as it was a turbid blue. I mean, maybe, but. <laughs> <laughs> that blue bell was a turbid blue. So the dreams are turbid blue? Yeah, or just her life in general. She can't see forward. She doesn't know where she's going to go from here. She sort of lost her North Star, maybe, in feeling adrift. And this this bridge certainly feels chaotic, right? Yeah, With all the crashing sure. voices and the crescendo yeah. of music that's happening. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about the bridge here in a minute. But it is a lot happening, and it's really fantastic. Mm. I love this bridge. And the drugstores, too, though. And the drugstores, too. I think I pair and the drugstores too with the next line. Let's listen. Drugstore is very suburban, right? It's uh, there's something very suburban about what's coming up to sit in the chair and be good now when we get there. The drugstores, the women in their coats with their dues, the Stepford Wives vibe that you're getting here. Like maybe that's all I'll be. Mm-hmm. Dreams with the flying pigs, murky blue. And medicated medicated with everything just following a simple daily path in my coat and my do but maybe nurses maybe nurses maybe the nurses are in their coats uh-huh you have sort of interpreted that as we're almost like in bedlam here mm-hmm. it really is kind of going wild with all these voices and it almost feels like madness mm-hmm. and later on we're skipping ahead but she has white coats entering her room so i definitely picture doctors, doctors yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So safe in their coats and in their dues, do we agree maybe they're nurses or like there's something medical happening? Yeah. Drugs. Being medicated or committed. Yeah, committed. Yeah. Is it smothering our hearts? It's smother in our hearts. Smother in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Smother in our hearts, David. A smother. Like as a noun, something to dull your dreams, something to make sure the fire is put out. A smother. Yeah. Like you're throwing a blanket on the fire. You're going to be team noun on this one too. <laughs> a smother is a noun. Smother is a verb also, yes, but there is. is a noun. Uh, you can look it up. Smother I don't is... I to look it look up. Look it up, David. Jesus. No, yeah, I'm team noun. 
Smother in our hearts. Oh, man. She's not saying smothering our hearts. No, I know. She's saying smother in our hearts. Smother in our hearts. Yeah. Smother in our hearts. Team noun. But is smother really a noun? It is a noun. No there one a, says that. An, Hand me that smother, mother. No well, one says that. Because no one. Because now the fireplaces are different and you don't need a smother to put out the fire. You instead just let the fire run out through the chimney. Done and done. But that's not how it used to be. You needed to always smother the fire. With what? With a smother. But what is that? Like what a, does it anything look like? that you use to smother out the fire. No one does that. Yes, you do. <laughs> Don't. Team now. You smother something like you put a pillow over someone's face and smother them to death. Yeah, you can do that anyway, if you're a verb. I'm going, which I am, I'm going with verb here too. Again, I'm glad that we've chosen our sides and we're not switching teams here. <laughs> It would be confusing to be team verb on this it and would. team noun on... And that's to me what this means. Like my dreams that I've held in my heart oh, so ha- it means... have been smothered or I'm smothering them, pretending them they weren't important to me so that I can yeah. deal with this disappointment. I think it means the same thing to the both of us. Just because I'm team noun is not to imply that it means anything different. However, smother in our hearts means there's a smother in our hearts. It's killing our hearts. Our hearts all right. will never... I wish you could all see Eve right now. He's waving his hand around the room in a very professorial manner, like, obviously, there's a smother in our hearts, people. Don't no. you know how we used to put out our fires? No, I'm saying <laughs> my the reason my hand is waving is because I'm trying to get the word fire. Like, our hearts will never flame. Oh, and I'm I trying thought you to, like, were fanning the flames. No, our hearts will never flame. That was my hand. Our hearts will our hearts will never flame because there's a smother on them. All Ugh. right. Well, to me, it's more active than that. Definitely verb. So she should have said smothering is what you're saying. Smothering our hearts. Maybe she is, and maybe she just messed up the lyric. I've clip. got to smother it in my heart. I've got to smother my heart. Team noun. All right. A smother and a pillow. Hmm. Interesting. You smother with a pillow. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Smother in our hearts. A pillow to my dots. What does that mean? Obviously, someone's being smothered with the pillow, right? Yeah. Our hearts are being smothered. The pillow is smothering the dots, whatever the dots are. Freckles. Yeah. I'm going back to the hearts. Sometimes a really girly girl could dot her eyes with a heart. Oh. Her hearts are being smothered. The eye, the eye that is me, everything about me and my dreams is Mm. being smothered. I like it. And the pillow to my dots? That's what I just said. (laughs) The dot could be a heart. Oh, I see. The dot see. could be the self. The dot could be all of those things, including her dreams, and they're all just being smothered into oblivion. Mm-hmm. All the dots that make her up. Right. Okay. I also think it's interesting that it's smother in our hearts, not just my heart. She's saying a pillow to my dots, mm. a smother in our hearts. It's also, it's very universal. Yeah, there's, it's collective almost. Yeah, it's like she's singing for all three of the girls, if not more. Yeah, and that takes me back to what you were saying about safe in their coats and in their dues, which, dumb, but I never really thought about that as hairdos. Really? Never. Okay. Um, which is so silly. But I think you're right. I love that image of these Stepford wives who've smothered all their dreams to survive. Yeah. And just pretend that they're happy in their suburban existence. I love that. Yeah. Like this is what she will become Mm -hmm. if she kills the... If you kill that bird. Yeah, if you squish the bird. Crucified too. One of my favorite moments on this album, vocally anyway, is that the everyone else's girl that she's singing repeatedly kind of is the second layer of vocals here. She's really taking on like a character 
are singing in a very strange stylized way that she has never done before or since i don't think mm-hmm. and i kind of like the one at the very end that's repeating maybe and she's just going maybe 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 like she sounds kind of drugged and out of it and it's kind of creepy and haunting but i don't know i just love it maybe, think she's ever brought texture with just her voice in that way before and it's subtle because it's kind of buried here but i just love that maybe, maybe, maybe. you don't think that's born in the studio what do you or mean an effect in part i think it's definitely filtered but she's singing in a very specific way that oh, okay. she doesn't i see also yeah and in the mist that she Mist, fog, haze, mm-hmm. drug-induced or otherwise. And she's just riding. She's not driving. She's just riding. Very docile already. This verse feels very docile. I could see that. To me, I don't know. There's something about riding and mist that seems very rooted in fantasy to mm-hmm. me. Like it's almost like Game of Thronesy. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel like maybe the she that's writing in the mist here is the future self. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of rising up or maybe going to be triumphant after all. And she's sort of gathering her power. I like that. Castles are burning in my heart. While castles are burning in my heart, you think? Like I know she says, and castles are burning in my heart. But and in the mist there, she rides. She's riding while castles are burning in my heart. The idea of dreams dying again, mm-hmm. castles burning, what you thought would happen, falling apart in front yeah. of your very eyes. Castle could be a very fairy tale esque symbol or idea, right? Yeah. Childhood. Yeah. And as I twist, I the idea of twisting, not letting something go, what do you think that means? I feel like we really are sort of in, like, she's grappling with her sanity here almost, and she feels like her life is being twisted or distorted away from her and she's just trying to hold on Mm -hmm. to make it through Mm -hmm. to not let it completely fall apart and i ride to work every morning wondering why and then we get to ride to work every morning like i just have to keep my mask on or keep up this facade of the appearance that everything is fine but i'm really riding to work having you know a total breakdown internally i guess Mm -hmm. wondering why her dreams are dying wondering why she's letting them go wondering why she's not working harder why it's not working out all of it yeah i ride to work every morning wondering why i'm not a trust fund baby (laughs) and i have to go to work at all sit in the chair and be good Eric. Again, like the idea that you said earlier of being committed. You've got the nurses, the doctors, the people in the doorway drowning the violins or standing there as the violins drown. Whoever it is, the murky, the people in the turbid shadows. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now sit in the chair and be good now. It's a directive and it's really sinister and ominous. And there's a male voice embedded in the background who we believe to be Eric. Mm -hmm. Also processed a little bit, right? To give it that horror movie-ish. Yeah. Sit in the chair. Yeah, it's where we were in the 90s. Yeah, it's fine. When I think of girl and being everybody else's girl and my dreams falling apart, she had very specific dreams of music, right? So to me, become all that they told you. Do it our way. Do it classically, play for the church, and that's like the furthest thing from her desire. Sit in the chair and be good now and just do that is what's driving all of this madness. Because I think interpreting up to now, it hasn't occurred to me that the ultimate worst thing for her would be to do that. 
become all that they told you. Because mostly if your dreams are falling apart, it's because you're not becoming what they told you to be mm. or what they told you you could be. And that's where the dream falls apart. But here, because of her life and her history, which we know, becoming what they told her is the falling apart, is the dream falling yeah. apart. And sit in the chair and be good now. Don't ask questions. Right. Don't make trouble. Yeah. Certainly don't rebel. Just make us happy and comfortable. Yeah. Play piano, classical piano, become all that they told you to be. I know it's not printed, but correct me if I'm wrong. I always hear a little extra word there that's either oh and become or go and become all that they told you on the album. Oh and become all that they told you. I hear that too, like a, an extra little syllable. Mm -hmm. I think it's oh and become. I think it's oh. And I, I, pr I prefer O because I love that it's so like a casual throwaway. Like that's all we're asking. Oh, and become all that we told you. No big deal. You can do that, right? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Like she sees troubles about to go down. She she sees like now is the make or break moment and I'm calling her. They're entering the room. We have very little time. You got to get out of there. Judy. Judy. You got to get you out of Kansas, Judy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it is interesting that the, her perspective continues to shift here. It's her, my not she's calling her baby. I take that to be like what you said earlier, how this one Tori, this one girl is in stasis looking before her, looking after her and observing like the bigger picture, the whole thing. And she's seeing the young girl is in danger and she's calling to her. The white coats are coming. The white coats are coming. Get out of there. Go. Thoughts? Impressions? Words? Yeah, I always read that as... A term of endearment for your significant other, which really? I know seems sort of oddly placed here, but that's how I've read it. Like, really, she's at her wit's end and maybe she's been committed at this point in the story. And she's like placing that phone call or reaching out for help from the Whoa. only person who can give it to her. World rocked. <laughs> Foundation cracked. I've never thought of anyone else other than herself. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but I have a little bit of a hard time with that. I'm calling my baby self, calling myself as a baby. No, I don't mean like baby. calling my baby self. It's not even her anymore. She's calling her baby. Like it is a term of endearment for someone that you love, but here she is trying to rescue herself, her baby, the innocent. It's not calling my baby self. Calling okay. I that's kind of what you're saying. Not so simply, not so baby self. No, I get it. Not like herself as a literal like newborn baby, the young self. But Yeah, like the idea, yeah, the dream, the that. dream that's about to be committed. The co white coats enter her room and I'm calling my baby. Otherwise, it's not the white coats enter my room and I'm calling my baby. Mm-hmm. It's the white coats enter her room and I'm calling my baby. And I don't think there's a phone involved. <laughs> I mean, I kind of do. Maybe not she's picking up the phone, but a cry for help. Maybe not a literal phone call. And we sort of started the dissection of this song by talking about girl the song as an entity too that Eric saved by pulling it out of the box. So I can't help but weave a little bit into that too here at the end. She's calling her baby, who could be Eric, to save her, save the song, save the girl. He would like it to think it was about him, wouldn't he? <laughs> He's so vain. <laughs> I just think that it's an odd place in the song to insert a lover of any kind. I agree. So I'm going to reject that idea from my life, but okay. I embrace it for yours. I stand by it.
I don't know. The phrasing of calling my baby is just too obvious to me to be calling back to any version of a younger self. My I don't baby. Think sh- I've got to be clear, since this is the one moment I get in the canon to talk about girl. It's not like she's looking at this as her younger self. It's a little girl who's about to be committed for the rest of her life. And that's... I'm calling my baby. I don't think that, I'm not saying that she looks at it as her younger self. I'm saying it's a so far removed from who she is that she's trying to protect this little girl. That's what I think. So there's no connection that it's her younger self, that it's just some innocent girl about to be, about to lose it all. And that's the baby that she's calling. So that's why what I mean when I say she's not saying calling my baby self. <laughs> to her, it's a different person. Like we've talked about the young Tori, the old Tori. They're two different she's. It's a totally different entity. And that's why it's easy to say calling my baby instead of reminding myself. I'm reminding myself. Okay. Which could have been the alternate lyric. (laughs) I'm not arguing with you. I'm just trying to state my opinion clearly. I got it. Anyway, another argument over Tori Amos lyrics. (laughs) From 1992. I know. Gay men are so sensitive. This feud has been simmering since 1992, if you can believe it. Team Noun. Team Smother. What is your favorite line in this song? If you had to pick one. They're all so great. And I really mean that. I'm having a hard time choosing one. But I kind of love Sit in the Chair and Be Good Now. Oh and Become. I'm willing to say Oh and Become all that they told you. It's so simple, but I just feel that the weight of other people's expectations, the weight of the expectations that you put on yourself and feeling like you haven't been able to live up to all of that. It's just said so succinctly here. I love that. I agree. That's a really great line and kind of the spine of this album, the idea that that's the option is fueling this need to express Mm -hmm. yourself in an honest way finally. But I also love that that holds, I mean, to live up to your potential for anyone to do that It's pretty much impossible to do that and stay still and make other people happy, right? But nevertheless, that's the expectation that we all feel like we're under. Make me happy, make me comfortable, please just sit there, but also don't let me down and do everything that I want you to do. So you're feeling that push-pull twist, I guess. Twist. Mm -hmm. Good word. Yeah. My favorite line, other than the chorus, uh, well, I'm not 17, but I've cuts on my knees. For whatever it evokes which I don't know if I fully explored why that line hit me so hard when I was a kid, but it did. And because when you're 17, you don't feel innocent. You look back at 17 as, God, I was so innocent. But when you're 17, you feel like you know everything. You feel very worldly n- worldly, and mm. not innocent. And maybe because I, was, I wasn't even 17 when I heard this song, maybe that had something to do with it because 17 then was in the future. And that seemed worldly. I don't know why. But yeah, that's my favorite line in the song. In a song filled with so many great lines. Should we listen to Yanta's cover and talk yeah. about the music? Always a favorite. Oh, God. There's something about this descending riff to me that makes me think... We're sort of walking downstairs again, maybe just because I use the word descending, but it does seem like we're kind of going down to a murky space. And it's also a little reminiscent of Father Lucifer to me.
I feel like time is rushing. Like, I feel like I have somewhere to be. I feel very tense. You're late. It's just maybe it is that rhythmic, the driving rhythm. But I do feel very, like, there's a, a high level of tension in the song that wasn't necessarily there in Crucify. Especially in the chorus, Yanta. Oh my god, I'm tense. Driving, there's so much anxiety there, but also yearning and kind of a release there after that bridge. It all kind of comes to a head and then an exhale. And it's not resolved, but you almost feel like everything's going to be okay somehow. And to me, that's all coming through just in the music itself, even with the lyrics removed. I do love that little exhale into that third chorus, like you said. But I don't feel relieved, <laughs> or I don't feel like anything's gonna be okay. I think like maybe that one breath, but I feel like, oh my God, I'm still tense. that that is high drama it is i do feel like the little synth outro there at the end makes me feel like we're in a video game and we've died Mm -hmm. and you can see game (laughs) over come up and it's like better luck next time well still everyone else's girl (laughs) Um, of course that was yanta's instrumental cover you can support him by going to patreon.com slash yanta And he does incredible instrumental covers of all of Tori's songs and deserves your support. He's a lovely gentleman. I've never listened to Girl the Instrumental because it doesn't exist. It exists only in this form, thanks to Yanta. So interesting to sit here with you, David, and listen to just the music. When we did it with Crucify, I definitely was singing along to it. But that Crucify was so naked, so you kind of need the words. Whereas this is its own domain 
like you like i felt it very easy to strip out the words and i wasn't even thinking about the words i was just like living in the world that the music was creating agreed which is i maybe that works to its advantage because i was going to say it's kind of more repetitive mm-hmm. than crucify but maybe that ultimately made it more hypnotic because mm-hmm. i totally agree i was just immersed in the world i yeah. wasn't singing along yeah. in my head and I don't think we've ever had the opportunity to hear the synth arrangement so clearly, meaning the actual notes that yeah. are being played because it's kind of buried in the mix. Obviously, she's singing over it. Yeah. So I was fascinated by that, too. Oh, way to go, Yanta. And everyone, run out and support Yanta. So let's do a little, let's talk a little bit about the bridge. It's the first time in her career, but not the last time where she does the layered vocals on the bridge. And it's so evocative and it's so like very classic Tori Amos. And this is where it begins, right? Yeah, it's incredible. And I I still don't think I've heard anything quite like this. But at that point in my life, hearing this for the first time, I certainly hadn't. And it kind of made my brain melt with how amazing it was. And it still does, frankly. It's so silly to say, but it's such a great tool in her toolkit that she used very sparingly. There's only a few songs that she's done it on. But it's so effective just to have like simultaneous vocals happening mm-hmm. across a bridge. Mm-hmm. God, I love it. That wind around each other and sort yeah. of fit together like puzzle pieces. Yes. But yeah. God. Um, have you ever listened to, you must have, listened to, well, Tori's music, obviously, but listen to a bridge like the one from Girl or the one from Father Lucifer, where to you, it's sort of stunning in the way that it's executed and even beautiful, but um, other people just can't process it or they're really put off by it. I'm obviously asking because I have. I've never played these bridges for other people and been like, listen to this and tell me what you think. Or like, this is an amazing bridge. I've played songs for people like that, but never just the bridge part. Well, I guess I haven't done it with that intention, but the song's just been on uh-huh. and people have had a very strong visceral reaction to it in a bad way. Like they almost can't process those separate voices and it's not coming to them as a cohesive whole. It's like a wall of shrieking. Like you're trying to serve them a slice of pizza on top of a donut all at the same time or something. And I just look over like, what is wrong with you? This is incredible. But I look at those people as purely not evolved people. (laughs) Obviously. Because your inner ear is able to separate the foreground from the background by the age of four, as I've learned in my travels. So the fact that these people can't do it are awful people. Yeah. I mean, maybe they can do it, but it's just not appealing to them. There's I something can't. about it that's off-putting. I, I don't, don't want to live in that world where <laughs> well, girls... we don't have to. We never have to leave this room if we don't want to. <laughs> um... Here we're seen and understood. What? They'll bring us food. Yeah. LA Cafe delivers. Here's a quote from Musician Magazine, May 1992. Tori says, since we're talking about the bridge, Tori says, bridges are my strength because I have so much material that doesn't make it into other songs, so it gets thrown into my bridges. Not britches, bridges. The bridge is the moment in the song that can take you someplace new, so that when you return to the chorus for the third time, you'll never hear it like you heard it the first time. The songs make certain demands, and they take on their own personalities. It's like I'm creating monsters, like making the thing. I have some that hang around for years. These little monsters, strange little girls. (laughs) I love that, not only because it appeals to my personal sensibility, but to me, girl kind of is a monster. Like, I think a lot of Tori's songs are, for lack of a better word, scary, but not in an obvious, like, death metal horror kind of way. But there's something 
really kind of harrowing and terrifying about a lot of her songs, yeah. Girl Included. Yeah. That really appeals to me. The bridge, again, is a is a great example because we have those deep, creepy voices. Right. You see kind of the woman running in. through in the horror film, like running up and totally. down the stairs trying to get out of the yeah. basement. Or, yeah. But I love hearing her talk about this kind of closet full of bridges she just has lying around the house. Because can you imagine that this bridge for girl was just laying around, not attached to a song? Because you can't imagine it fitting in any other place, mm -hmm. right? Right. So that leads me to believe that the bridge is purely musical, right? There aren't any lyrics for it, maybe? Sometimes, I, I bet you're right. Like, when she's writing a bridge, it's probably the first thing is music. But sometimes she's, she's said before that sometimes the, like, line will come to her and... I think when she's completed a bridge, it's lyrics and music, maybe. Yeah. If you think of something's just keeping you numb from Donut Song. Yeah. Yeah. That's barely a bridge. Though. I know. It's like two lines. But yeah. In this case, I feel like maybe the music after hearing Yanta's cover, because the bridge is, it's lush. I feel like the bridge is a lot more lush than in the choruses and the verses you're dealing with this like pounding, driving thing, right? But then the bridge opens itself up into this kind of like garden where you can see, I love that she says, when you return to the chorus for the third time, you'll never hear it like you heard it the first time. I do feel with the bridge that she's like in this open place, but now you're back to the monotony of your daily routine mm -hmm. and the, the things that may never happen for you. I do feel it in the song. So I don't know the answer if, if she had just written the music, I think maybe because the words are strange and the words fit into the narrative mm -hmm. of the song. So I feel like the words maybe came when she finally placed the bridge in the song. Maybe. That's my guess. But I don't know. Add it to our list of questions. Sing Put it, it on the list. I think we should be her. compiling a list of questions that we want. We are. We, we want to get I've, answered. I've started. Yeah. Number one, what was the name of Little Earthquakes before you went back and recorded those last four tracks, one of which was called Little Earthquakes? We need to know. What was the name of the album going to be? Totally. My guess is Learn to Fly. Which is also, <laughs> what? has <laughs> never seen the light of day. I know. What about Upside Down? Maybe. It could have been Upside Down. Tori Amos, Upside Down. Mm. Could we live in a world where it was Tori Amos? Dirty streets. Oh, I like it. No. There's another quote. You want to read this other quote? From Keyboard Magazine, Germany, 1992, June. Tori says, Now, I don't want to say that electronic instruments are anything bad. For example, the electronic arrangement for Girl is Mine. Eric made the sounds on the Kurtz file and I programmed everything since I don't have a clue. So Eric programmed the sounds into the Kurtz vial and she then heard them and came up with the arrangement. And composed, yeah. How right. wonderful. Right. God, they're such a good pair in that back in the day. <laughs> what do you think she was responding to in this clip of the quote? Because it sounds like it was preceded by her sort of saying something negative about electronic music. The interviewer said to her, you only rarely work with electronics. Sugar on the CD single China has an electronic arrangement. And Tori said, yes, but it's centered around the electric piano, where the keyboard guy says, why are you so hesitant towards electronic instruments? And Tori says, because they don't have the soul that a piano has. And then that's the quote that you read. Now, I'm not saying. It's so funny that like this was considered electronica. Am I wrong? <laughs> well, for her it was, because this smattering of synth really stood out on this largely acoustic album. Yeah. Acoustic in so much as the piano is the centerpiece. Right, not that course. there aren't electric guitars, obviously, or whatever. But right. It's funny because I guess my relationship to electronica, it's much more in a dance way. Sure. So when I think, because I was young when this came out, around Boys for Pele is when I really started to get into dance music. Not just the Boys for Pele remixes, but all dance music. So when I think electronica, I think, you know. I feel like obviously at this point, she was coming back to the piano for the first time and very much wanting to honor it and make it the centerpiece of the album. 
and she never in a million years would have played on um, an electric piano or a keyboard. And I think that carried on for quite a while. Like in 1996, she never would have just had a harpsichord sample as a replacement for the real thing. Right. That all changed. Right. She kind of did it, I guess. <laughs> I mean, because but, I mean, because she had done it and because she traveled down that path, I feel like she was able to be a lot more loose about it later. She, what did she have to prove at that point? But here, it wasn't even about proving anything. It was about renewing that relationship with the instrument yeah. and playing it as, as, as her soul felt it, maybe. Mm-hmm. But she did play electric keyboards from time to time. The writer in the 92 tour contract was that each venue would provide a piano for her to play for the night of and on the nights that she was in venues that didn't have a piano she would come out with her keyboard right so in a pinch in a pinch yeah it wasn't her preferred yeah obviously but it was still i guess what i'm saying is even in that case she did it because she had to but it's it was supposed to sound like yeah you're right piano, it was exactly right? it wasn't yeah like she didn't go like oboe mm-hmm. oboe hang on yeah oboe find Where's it this damn thing oh. <laughs> um that's great i love girl Oh, I love it more now than I did before. And that was a lot. I know. Me too. What should we do now? Should we talk to Danica? Sure. Let's get Danica on the horn. Okay. And we're calling Danica. Here's a 16-bit cover of Girl by Daryl Banner. You can find this and everything else we play on our show notes page at songsoftoriamus.com. gentlemen boy do i have a treat for you a staple on the tour scene from the 90s and early aughts we have miss danica lamb formerly danica knox a close personal wife of mine she is timeless hi danica hello you're our girl for all seasons i don't even know what to say to all that (laughs) you've been on an episode of our tour all year show where you talked all about discovering tori amos but give us the in a nutshell version here today I was I had a babysitting gig, um, I guess, in the summer, and I had it on MTV back when they actually played videos, and Chris Five came on. Then I remember going to, because uh, I looked at the video, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting, this redhead. And then I remember going to Camelot Music back when Camelot was a thing in the mall, and I was like, hey, I went to the, to the guy who sold you know, records, and I was like, hey, I'm looking for this song, something about Chris Fy or this redheaded girl. And he's like, oh, it's Tori Amos. And he's like, do you want the EP or do you want the Smells Like Teen Spirit? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Smells Like Teen Spirit. And, and that, that was kind of the, the end of beginning there. The end of the beginning. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning is the end of the beginning. So I'll throw in a Pumpkins reference there, too. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. I just happened to see her on MTV. And I was like, who is this? And the rest is history. 
So you buy the EP, right, with Crucify and Smells Like Teen Spirit. Did you buy the album right then as well? No, I bought the album. I didn't buy the EP because I was like, nobody needs to fuck with Teen Spirit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not so fast, lady. I know, right? I did not trust in the redhead at the time. So you buy Little Earthquakes and you take it home and you pop it in. You get through Crucify and you're like, that's the single that I liked. That's the, the video I saw. Everything's great. And then you get to Girl. Explain that moment. Tell me what happens. You know, I don't remember the very moment, to be honest with you. I remember listening to the album. The first song that really just struck me was Little Earthquakes. I mean, it's so haunting. And I loved it as a whole. But I remember as a <laughs> dark, angsty in my late teens, I was sitting in the dark writing poetry and it came on. It just hit me in the face. So it took a couple of listens, and then it just, in the moment, it just hit me. And I just sat there, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And I just remember sobbing in the dark, being all angsty and weird and completely letting it surround me. Did you feel yourself like you were everybody else's girl? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a pretty strict home. My father was in the military, um, in the Air Force, and he was pretty, pretty strict. Um, and so I kind of had to grow up with a certain set of rules. And it wasn't like an abusive, like a physically abusive situation. It was more like kind of a mental fuck. Um, and I feel like at that time, they, my parents were going through a divorce. And I think that's when I recognized that that kind of took place. But yeah, it was a very controlled environment. Um, and until my parents split up, I wasn't able to kind of find myself, but I still live my life to help everybody else, including my mother, taking care of my great aunt till she died. And I don't feel like I really let go and became my own true person probably until I, I actually left Tennessee. It's interesting that Crucify was kind of the gateway song, but then you end up kind of forging this relationship with Girl because it seems like uh, both songs kind of explore similar subject matter in terms of finding it hard to live up to other people's expectations or maybe kind of living to please them and win their approval. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think it is that Girl eventually kind of pulled ahead for you? Oh, gosh. You know, there's something just so haunting about Girl. And, I mean, Crucify is a great song, and I definitely can relate to it. But there's just something very dark about Girl. Uh, I mean, there's lyrics that upon listening to it, they make no sense. You know, drugstores, flying pigs, you know, like all this stuff when you first hear it, you're just like, what the fuck? And, <laughs> and it's kind of what I felt like. Like, everything was so jumbled and... It was kind of like searching in this song, um, searching for what it meant. And I was searching for who I was. So I think that's why it's a little more to me, um, because we all make these songs our own from based on our own experiences. It could be one thing for one person and one thing for another. And so to me, Crucify was more blatant and you didn't have to search into things. But this was more of like that dark. Poetic a little bit more. Exactly. And like I said, I'm sitting in the dark writing poetry. It was kind of a Sunday ritual. How could you even see what you were writing? <laughs> well, I had candles because, you know, I was so dark. And she was moody. Oh, my gosh. She was, was living so through it. <laughs> oh, I totally was. I mean, oh, yeah. There's some really fun stuff. But I, for some reason, even though I, I'm a pretty light person on the outside, I have a very deep attraction to dark things. 
sad songs. Uh, I mean, I, I'm the happiest I've ever been, but man, give me a good sad song. Nothing like it. It's my inner God. Agreed. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about your history chasing girl throughout the country. So I tried um, in my traveling the country to move and live in multiple places in the last couple of years. I have become a little more unorganized than I would like to be. And so I made Tori a book and I was going to see if I could find it to reference it because my memory is, is shit now that I'm 44. And um, so I made a book when I saw her in 2014, right? Yep. So I made a book of every time I discuss girl with her or somehow myself and girl came up either through somebody else or something happened or somebody called me or she sound checked. And I was hoping to find that, but I couldn't find it. I'm so pissed. But the first time I ever met Tori, I asked her about it. It was in Nashville. It was at a, at a radio station. It was just not a big deal. She was playing the Ryman that night. I had never seen her. I didn't get to see her in 92. And I met a girl, the first Tory friend I ever made, and uh, we went to the radio station. And Tori came in. It was just her and Joel, and it was just me and Melissa sitting there talking to Tori. It wasn't like a big deal. I had mentioned the song, and she was like, well, I don't really think this. You know, Tori is so, when it comes to that, she's like, easy to brush things off. So I never even mentioned it again until 1998. And 98 is what I went balls out for the song. Um, girl hunting. Girl hunting, yeah, like Goodwill hunting, good girl hunting, whatever. <laughs> and I saw her in at the Royal Albert Hall in London both nights. So I talked to her before the show, did the meet and greet, and I was just like, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. I came here. I'm, I'm here from, you know, Tennessee, and I was visiting, and you were playing, so I'm here to do the show. What are the possibilities of hearing girl? And she was like, well, you know, these aren't really the right place. These are very kind of um, a lot of media, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. And she was like, well, you're going to, are you going to be in the, the States? And I was like, yes. And she's like, okay, well, ask me back in the States. And I'm like, okay. So then from there, it became a game. <laughs> and I had something different in every, I tried to come up with something interesting every time I saw her um, in some form or fashion. So every time I talked to her at a meet and greet, I would have some way. And I saw like 35 shows in 98. So I didn't ask her 35 times because I didn't do all the meet and greets. But I gave her gifts and they had little reminders on them. I made probably the most well-known one or my proudest one was the um, Scrabble board. That was a lot of fun. And I bought two Scrabble boards. And I made one out of lyrics. And then I pasted pictures of Teletubbies because she was totally into Teletubbies at the time. You guys remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe you were your own worst enemy and Tori wasn't playing the song because she wanted to see what you were going to do next. Imagine. By possible. <laughs> yeah, because I would give her little things or, you know, it would be like door wrote it on my hand once in Dayton and Somebody called me and said, oh, my gosh, she's doing a girl sound check. And I'm like, oh, holy shit, are you serious? And you know how all that was back then. It was, like, super exciting, and it was new, and it was, like, all this stuff. And, and I wanted to hear the song, but then it became a little bit bigger than that. And when I gave her this, uh, this Scrabble board, she loved it, it, you know, and it was a great moment. And then I think a couple of shows later, somebody went back and talked to her, and they were like, your Scrabble board was back there. And I was like, shut the fuck up. Really? That's amazing. <laughs> was, yeah, because I gave it to her in West Lafayette. It was a Halloween show. And when she pulled in that day, when I gave her the Scrabble board, 
something I gave her previously at another show was in the front of the tour bus was this like a little yellow giggly thing that I gave her that had like an elephant on it that had a string around his finger that just said, don't forget. And then it just said girl on it. Oh, that's cute. It's a, yeah. So it was at the front of the bus and I have a picture of that somewhere. And then I was like, oh my God, that's <clears throat> hilarious. Um, so it just kind of kept going and it has kind of been going ever since, even though she plays it. Um, but I don't go as balls out as I did in 98. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Were you imagining that she was going to arrange it for the band because it was the first band tour? Or were you like, you can do it solo. Make it easy on yourself. Just play it. Or did you really <laughs> want to hear it with the band? Um, you know, I really wanted to hear it with the band because obviously she hadn't, she hadn't done it before. And I was, I mean, the band is amazing. Um, and she's doing so many interesting arrangements. And I didn't give a fuck how I heard it. I just, I wanted to hear it. And um, unfortunately, you know, it kind of took a life of its own. So it became a little bit different when, you know, how it kind of changes. When you ask her in the moment for something and she plays it, it's very personal. But then when it became, you know, like a, a 30 show request, it became a conquest. Looking back, what's been your favorite arrangement of Girl? Oh my gosh. I, I love the 2015. I mean, I think I'll always remember the, the Nashville one the most. Unrepentant Geraldines? Correct, yeah. So sometimes it's so, it's so hard to remember. Some things I remember clear as a bell. And then sometimes I'm like, well, was I there? And people are like, yeah, you were there. We did this. And I'm like, oh. Another question, Danica. Now that you are older and you've had an incredible transformation in your own life, how has this song, your relationship with the song, Girl... Now that you are a woman, how has this relationship changed? It, and I would say it's, it's just recently changed in the last five years. Leaving Tennessee and moving 5,000 miles to Alaska, um, I truly took on my own time. I didn't stay anywhere because anybody else needed me. Even my mom begged me to stay, and I was like, I'm not, I got to do this for myself. And so after that, and after I, I took that responsibility to move forward, instead of kind of like a, a taunting, because it, it always felt like a dark taunting. And this is going to probably sound really weird. But, I mean, this is coming from a musician that calls her song Girl. So that's okay, right? Um, it, it, the song became more like a sister than somebody that just taunted me thinking, you're never going to be the person that you want to be because you're always going to be living up to somebody else's expectations. Wow, that's very, very deep. <laughs> Yeah, so it became like a, a friend, a sister, a confidant. Instead, it, it reminds me of who I used to be, and I'm not that person anymore, but I still love that person for what they went through to be who I am now. So I wouldn't change a thing, period. You wouldn't change a thing? Never, even with my ex-husband, all that stuff. It's all learning experiences, and it makes you the person that you are now, and you live through those things to learn from them and become better. For yourself. Oh, you heard it here, folks. Follow Danica at Danica Lamb on Instagram. Be her friend. She's amazing. She's my first wife. You're my first wife, Danica. I love you. Do you remember our marriage at the Jerry's Deli in 03? Ah. I gave you a lifesaver and you said, a lifesaver? Right. <laughs> oh my, my God. Ring? <laughs> Danica, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Of course, we're going to have you on again for the choir girl season. Yes. That would be amazing. Great. I would love it. Love you guys. Thank I you for having love me. Love you. Miss you. Love you. Bye. 
is Cecily Link. Girl was one of the first songs that I really connected with on Little Earthquakes. Because of all the songs on that album, I can relate to Girl the most because I am a people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser like my mom. I love that she's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she can be her own. Like maybe one day she'll learn to, to please herself instead of just doing what everybody else wants her to do. It's meant a lot to me over the years. And certainly as I've gotten older, I've been doing a lot better with myself and trying to do things for myself instead of just doing what everybody else wants me to do but I always have a soft spot for this song. Everybody else's girl, take one. One, two, three, four. Everybody wants to know her. Everybody wants to hold her. And everybody seems that he's everybody else's girl Every time I call his name now Every time it's all the same now And everybody dies that he's everybody else's girl And he's a natural who never lies And he's a sweet girl who never cries the boots on Jackie's a girl for one roll with the song There ain't no stopping me now I'm trying to keep a man from a broken heart There ain't no stopping me now I gotta keep my world from falling apart Everybody wants to know her Everybody wants to hold her And everybody seems that she's everybody else's girl that was the BBBs with Everybody Else's Girl. Well, it's time for the live section. The best. I can't believe it. This is always my favorite part of the show. We've mm. made it through and now we can get... It's like you've worked all day to get there and now you get to just enjoy a concert. <laughs> Take it, Tori. I love that I've established by the second episode mm-hmm. that this is my favorite part of the show. Yeah. Well, it's good to know who you are. You're never going to be anyone else's girl. So for the Little Earthquakes tour, which we defined as any show... Taking place in 1992. That's our. That's what we call a Little Earthquake show. Whether it yeah. was officially on the tour schedule, whether it was like a one-off festival. Whether it was in a concert venue or an airline cafeteria. Right. Well, we don't count that as part of the, the show count. Or, or radio shows either. But like any other thing. You know, like a show. Whatever. <laughs> Good thing we cleared that up. So we have counted 146 shows on the Little Earthquakes tour. 45 surviving set lists remain from those shows and we found six instances where she played girl so that's 13 percent of the shows six shows out of 45 is 13 percent so if you take that sample and apply it to the 146 shows that she did you can assume she did girl 18 times which is not a lot no Um, But that means we're still missing 12 girls. We knew that this was the case before, but it's still crazy to me that promoting her debut album with so few songs to choose from, she wasn't playing the whole album every night. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe she felt she couldn't accomplish it on just the piano. Maybe it was really synth-heavy in her mind. I mean, it is synth-heavy, and there are a lot of different sounds going on and a lot of different elements, and maybe she thought, like, it's best preserved on the record. I don't know. She can play Precious Things solo every night. She can certainly play Girl. That's true. But it's like when 
when someone asked her to play Heart of Gold live, and she's like, oh, "Yeah, right." <laughs> um, so, shall we play some? Yeah. Okay, you want to play this one from the radio, David? The radio. Again, let's try to figure her out. I'm touring to promote my album. I'm not going to play track two, but I'm going to play it at a random in-studio at a radio station. Yeah, in session with BBC UK. It's what you do. You give them something new. Okay. You give them something you don't give anyone else. It's BBC for crying out loud. <laughs> so this is from February 3rd, 1992, BBC Radio In Session. A threat so thin, a limitation Dreams with the flying pigs A timid blue and the drugstores To a safe in the cuts and images Well, smiling our hearts A beautiful dance One day, maybe one day Crazy bridge, crazy performance, love it. Yeah, so impassioned. How was she not playing yeah, this every, night, every right? night of the tour? Well, maybe she, like, oh, there's a million different reasons. Who knows? Put it on the list. But it was Why a rarity. Why did you not play Girl in 1992? <laughs> How could you? Or 1994. Phrase it like that. How could you? How could you? That was from BBC in session on February 3rd. This was the performance from London, England a couple of nights before that. Uh, on January 30th in London. And it has a little improv at the beginning. You ready? Yep. Ready, world? Here's Girl. She sounds so young. Oh, yeah. It's really surprising, you know, just to hear it. Just it makes me smile. It gives me like this fondness for young Tori. I don't know, because we we grew up with her. She's grown up. We've grown up with her. So it's nice to hear that like transmission from the past, from the shadows she sings. Oh, my gosh. You're going to make me emotional. (laughs) Really? And it's so high and crystal clear and piercing not in a painful way right it like pierces through your heart yeah uh, um that was january 30th in london and i noticed a little, tiny little riff from scott joplin's the entertainer which david had to we sat here for like 20 minutes trying to figure out what it was and i, ke- I kept humming the rest of it so here's scott joplin's the entertainer And 
and here's the tiny little riff. It's like one second. Here, mm-hmm. Hit it, Tori. Let's play it again. Oh, one more time. I love it. David doesn't agree with me. It's so, it's such a small piece. I mean, I can see it that she's just sort of riffing on it or improvising around it. Yeah. And that's kind of, maybe not when you're someone as gifted as Tori, but that's kind of a standard thing to learn to play on the piano Mm -hmm. as maybe not a kid, but when you're learning piano. Yeah. Yeah. Intermediate. To play. Yeah. Here's a performance from September 4th in San Juan Capistrano from the After the Rain bootleg, which is so popular back in the day. Mm. And interesting because she doesn't do the the bridge lyrics. She does the bridge background lyrics. Right. My guess is she probably doesn't play it enough, so she forgot the lyrics because you know how she can be. But still really interesting to hear just the background come to the foreground. Yeah, just that invocation of the repeated, it's like everyone girl. The understudy gets the part. Everyone else's girl, maybe one day she'll be her own. Everyone else's girl, maybe one day she'll be her own. Which, to be fair, is how it seems that she played it most often Mm -hmm. without the turbid blue lyrics, with the background lyrics coming to the foreground. If you'd gone to Tori Amos's shows in 1992 and you were a girl super fan, put yourself in Danica's shoes, but back in 92, would you have been disappointed to not hear the bridge lyrics? I don't think so. These performances are so great. I mean, the performances were amazing, but I would have thrown yeah. my tour book down. I mean, she didn't even do the bridge lyrics. She didn't even say Turbid Blue or Drugstore 2. I want my 350 back. Because it was the 90s? Yeah, the so early cheap. 90s. So cheap. Well, she loved to improv with Girl. This is later on the tour. This is October 8th in New York City, and she improvs again before Girl. Ready to hear it? Let me hear it. Hear it. And this is the last Girl that we have in 1992. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 
You know what that sound means, David? We're 94. Oh, I look great. I know. Looks <laughs> so young. Well, she performed it one time in 1994 on March 7th in Bristol, England. Isn't that crazy? One time out of 146 shows. What's wrong with her? I know. 131 surviving set lists and only one instance of girl. Therefore, I can pretty much assume... It was a one and done. Yeah. And it was pretty early on in the tour. And she was like, no. Right. Would you like to hear it? No. Well, you're in luck. I wouldn't give her the satisfaction of <laughs> listening to the one time she deigned to play it. Uh, so why do you suppose she only played it once? Yeah. I just have to believe that she wasn't feeling connected to it at all for whatever reason. I don't really know. Yeah. That's nuts. It's a great song. She's never played it a lot. That's for sure. So she's never not played it a lot all the time. <laughs> Well, she's played it more than anyone else I know. <laughs> That's not true. I have a feeling we've played it more than she has, just listening to it. <laughs> On the CD player. Yeah, totally. Should we take a trip? I packed my bags. 96. I've learned we... with you. We I ne- always bring a bag. We never know where we're going to go. Well, we never actually unpacked. God. Uh, 1996, here at the Do Drop Off, she performed it one time again on this tour. Isn't that crazy? Mm. One time on the 23rd of October in Miami, Florida. And that was the sad show. It was not a good show. She left the stage due to personal reasons. She was feeling ill. So she left the stage and then was off stage for probably about 15, 20 minutes and then came back and completed the show. And the rest of the show, she was like, I'm just going to treat it like we're in my living room and I'm just going to play for you. And that ended up being one of the most special shows of tour just because of the stuff she played. It was the debut of Cooling. And Girl came back for the first time in a long time. And clearly if that hadn't happened and she'd walked off the stage, she would have gone through that entire tour, 187 shows, without playing it ever. Yeah. Here's October 23rd in Miami, Florida.
I love that version. I've listened to that version so many times. Me too. Yeah. It's hard to listen to. It's hard to it's, listen to, but it's In the beautiful. sense that it's heartbreaking. And yeah. it almost sounds like she's really sort of stretching her voice to its limit. It kind of cracks at certain points. Yeah. She's just sort of really um, letting loose. Yeah. And poor Katen. Poor Katen. <laughs> Let's move to 98, shall we? Okay. Okay. Ow, 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 ow. So in 1998, she played it eight times. It was on the piano with the band, and David can confirm that she would turn to the synth and play the chorus and the bridge. Certainly. Well, it's not hard to confirm. It's on Venus Live. Well, fine, but I'm treating everything like breaking news. Yeah. Here is the tour debut in Lowell on November 17th. song works really well with the band certainly you think it would have a band arrangement sooner than the end of the tour but yeah it was almost it was like it was the last two weeks of the tour yeah i remembered it appearing a little earlier than that but once it showed up she basically played it every night till the end of the tour yeah absolutely and it appeared on to venus and back yeah still orbiting let's play that seminal performance Mm. let's do it roll it ollie I think it's that amnesia thing we were talking about at the top of the show. She forgot it existed. She got a bee in her bonnet, probably from Danica. She's like, all right, I'm going to learn it with the band. And then she was like, yeah, this song's good. I want to play it every night. Danica's I want right. to put it on my live album. I'm going to play it every night, every tour for the... What, what, what song? Girl? What? 1999? Yeah. No. Never heard of her. So here we are, 1999. It looks a lot like 1998, but we have crimped hair. She didn't perform it at all in 1999. She said, girl, go back to the shadows. No? She said, girl, I know where you'd go if you could. You'd go to Venus, and then I'd leave you there. 2001, also nothing. Nothing. No sign of that girl. Would have been a good tour, strange little girl. 
then 2002, 2003 rolls around, and she performs it 24 times, certainly the most from any tour. Mm-hmm. In 0203, on the piano with the trio. Isn't that crazy? I want to ask you a question. Ask me that question, David. I can see it burning in your eyes. Why do you think, at certain points, this song really seems to come back full force? Look at this, Scarlet's Walk, 24 times. We'll get there. But it also showed up on Native Invader tour several more times than one would have thought it would, considering this is kind of a rarity. So why do you think that is? I think it's exactly what you said. She forgot about it. And then they work it up because it's a request. And she's like, oh, yeah, I actually am feeling that song. And it's fun, probably fun to play with a band. Mm. You know, it's got a good rhythm for all involved, especially when it's only a trio. When it's the three of them, there's really a lot for them to do. You know, she's keeping that driving rhythm. The drums are keeping that beat. And then the bass is playing around. I don't know. That's why. Answer your (laughs) question, David. You don't have to get so mad. Uh, I have a slightly (laughs) different theory. Okay, tell me. My theory is, in her oh-so-tory way, sometimes the girl in this song becomes the she that is America. And in times when America is in crisis or transition, the song takes on different meaning for Tori, and she brings it out a lot more. I think you could be right. She crucifies her land. Mary, she's actually personified the land in a woman named Mary. So I don't think it's far-fetched, especially with Tori, especially during this tour. And that's when we start to get pretty good year, pretty she is. Oh, yeah. Pretty she can be (laughs) finger in the air don't get ahead of yourself not all the time and not yet can be (laughs) future tense i think this girl is sitting there alongside amber waves or the girl is amber waves at this point interesting i do so the tour debut of girl was in chicago illinois on november 29th 2002 you want to hear a little bit of that david play it think you're right once she discovers it or remembers it it's like oh oh, okay let's play it every night because for that was on november 29th towards the end of the first leg of scarlet's walk and then it basically showed up every other show almost the rest of that leg yeah so here is when i first got girl for the first time and this was december 18th in Los Angeles. You got girled. Girl got girled at (laughs) Universal Amphitheater. Oh, I got girled that night too. Oh yeah, you were there. Hey. Hey. (laughs) 
sat by Reese Witherspoon that night. Oh. This was prior to me having a cell phone even because I came out of that show and I said to Lisa, oh my God, I seat hopped right next to Reese Witherspoon, which is 100% true. And Lisa said, Lisa B, who is a dear friend of ours, said, this is why they invented text messages. And I said, I don't have a cell phone. I remember this story. That's weird. Was I standing in that group when that happened? Or have you just told this story recently? I might have. Were there text messages in 2002? There were, but I didn't. (laughs) They had just started. No, they had just started. And I didn't have a phone yet. Mm. I got my phone in January 2003 because partially hazed by that statement that Lisa made. I got my phone number in 2003 and it's never changed since. I can't imagine coming out of my screening of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, (laughs) texting about it in the middle of 2002. (laughs) Doesn't seem impossible uh, you want to hear the last time she played it on this tour yeah here we go roll it ollie on to the next tour how many pianos you got seven that's a lot it's a lot of pianos she performed it seven times on the lot of pianos tour which is just an extension of the scarlet's walk tour so that's a lot of i mean she was in the same headspace and so she played girl a lot so it only it stands to reason that in 2005 she'd play it right yeah yeah so how many times did she play it in 2005 david <whistles> what crickets what none <gasps> impossible i don't believe you oh my goodness she played it zero times in 05 it's a sin that's okay she made up for it in 07 right yeah how many times i don't know none none what's going on clyde (laughs) pull it together of course of course this is like clyde's anthem without ever having sung or been touched by clyde i know imagine rattlesnakes and a girl Mm, Mm. that'd be great bouncing off clouds rattlesnakes girl yeah Girl disappearing, girl. Oh, there would have been, of course. Of course. Clyde, get your act together. (laughs) You need a career coach, Clyde. But she did bring it back 11 times in 2009 on the Sinful Attraction Tour. It was sinful and it was attractive. Hmm, I'm attracted to it. This is Girl from September 20th, 2009 in Copenhagen. And you know what's interesting about it, David? Hmm. Is that this is pretty close to the end of the tour. I mean, if you consider that the tour started in March and this is September, she hadn't played it, but then she played it and played it pretty much consistently for the rest of the tour. Isn't that crazy how she does that to us? Well, this leads me to believe that she definitely prefers playing it with the band. And maybe it's difficult to learn. Mm. So once they put the work in, she's like, we're playing it every night now. Right. right. We're playing it again. Fine by me. September 20th, Copenhagen. And do we stay? And love. 
This is September 28th in Dusseldorf, and I chose this performance because I think the drums are being a little extra, and I love it. And also, I think it's very clear in her performance that she's treating smother as a noun. That was great. I know. You were snapping your fingers and I tapping was, your toes. I was being Ollie. Girl. Ollie, our sound man from the booth. Now, it did appear one other time in her official video catalog when she performed it on December 9th, 2009, live from the Artist's Den. times on the Simple Attraction Tour and went on to do the summer tour right after the 2010 summer tour and did it seven times. Isn't that crazy? It is. Isn't that crazy? Give it to us, Tori. Let's play this show. This is from July 21st in Bloemendal, Netherlands. I don't know if I'm saying that right and I apologize if I'm not, but the show is amazing and the performance is amazing and I want to play and she, the intro is amazing. Let's play it and we'll talk about it. Okay. Ready? <laughs> Thank you. 
photograph my image under thumb. Yes, with a message for my heart. Yes, with a message for my heart. She's been everybody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her Okay, hearing it as we heard it in 1992 when it was kind of in the distance from, you know, the recorder was in the person's front pocket and you're kind of like peeking through the flannel pocket with the stage lighting and you see like a young foggy Tori when she was younger and like her voice is piercing through the past. Yep, I can see the rope dangling from her belt loops. Yeah, and you're like seeing this fuzzy picture of her and she sounds so young. She's a girl. And then you hear this performance and she's, it's a clearly a very strong woman performing this song. And it's crazy to take those two and put them back to back. What do you think? Like to sing this as a woman, as a woman, as a woman singing to the other girls in the audience that like, Hey, you can do it. She's the Tori in the future that she once wrote about. Yeah. It just gives me a sense of like, my heart's a flutter at the moment. Likewise. Let's move ahead. Shall we to the unrepentant Geraldine's tour? <laughs> 2014, she did it two times. Was one of them in Orlando? Yes, she did. Would you like to hear it? I would like to hear it again, because I was there. Oh. It was a great show. It was a really good show. Oliver, you heard the man. Play girl. Five times on the 2015 summer tour. Let's just play Helsinki. That's my favorite from the. It's fun to say. Maybe one day she'll be 
finally made it to the most recent tour as of our recording date, the 2017 Native Invader Tour, where she performed it on Nord and Piano. Would you like to hear the tour debut? I would, but can I tell you something shocking? Yes. Shock me, girl. This is my favorite arrangement it's of great. this song. Yeah, it's really, really I great. I loved it. It. Yes. She would have, could have, should have played it every night, and I would have been as into it as I was every time I heard it. It was incredible. It was incredible. I agree. She performed it only seven times on the entire Native Invader tour, but I agree with David. She should have done it every night. It should have been a staple. As history dictates, when she finds girls, she plays it a lot, not this time. But here is the tour debut on November 3rd in Washington, D.C. Roll it, Ollie. <laughs> time she's played it to I, this date oh yeah this and i was there likewise and i was next to was i next to danica that night oh or was that the second night here's the last time she's played it to this day and it's december 1st 2017 in los angeles roll it ollie I'm 
There's something about the Nord that is so pleasing to the ear and really appropriate in the song. It has that tension, the way it's present on the album. I agree, and it somehow manages in this arrangement to be sort of comforting, mm. but also, I don't know, I have a really strong emotional response to it. I kind of feel like I'm adrift in the turbid blue or yeah. something. No, there's something really beautiful yeah, about it. Yeah, there's like a and... desperation too. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It just makes me incredibly sad. Oh. In that way that only Tori can, but again, not in sad. a bad way. No, we it's love to be Tori wistful. sad. Yeah, yeah. Tori sad wistful, exactly. with our good bottle of wine. <laughs> uh, well, um, that's the live section. All told, she's performed it seventy times mm. live. Out of if we we need someone to total up all the songs she's performed <laughs> in her career, and then that way we get a percentage. Get like, to work. Yeah. <laughs> well, pick a remix, Ollie. Play us out. David, how do you feel? I feel great. How Me do you too. feel? <laughs> I feel great too. We have a contest winner, and would you like me to announce that contest winner? So we're doing this contest during the little earthquake season, where we announce all the capital words in the lyrics, and then you make a poem on Twitter and tag it L E Poetry, and we will give you a prize for our favorite one. And how we pick the favorite is I read them without, I read them dramatically to David and without him knowing who I'm reading, he picks one. I close my eyes. And he just, he listens to the sound of it. I sway back and forth with my hand over my heart. And he did do that. He did. I thought it was weird, but it's fine. (laughs) And the winner that he chose for our first Ellie Poetry, and we're going to do this all season long. So you better participate in the poetry or there's going to be one winner every time. And it's going to be Eve. I participated. And the capitalized words from Crucify were guilt, cry, heart, God, courage, and love. So for her poem, never feel guilty crying over a broken heart, as with godlike courage you shall love again. That's been our theme on Never Shut Up. The winner is Valerie Horsefall. All right. You go, girl.
Congratulations, Valerie. So make sure you send us your uh, mailing address, Valerie. I think we have it, but make send it again just to be safe, and we'll send you something fun. For this episode, the capitalized words are crawls, under, bluebells, and cherry tree. So use them wisely. Remember to tag LE Poetry on Twitter. If you like what we do, please follow us on our social media at Songs of Tori Amos across all platforms. If you really like what we do, I like what you do. Head over to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos where you can become a subscriber if you aren't one already. And we have many different levels with many different thank you gifts. So head over to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos and become a supporter today. If you want to get our newsletter, head over to our website, songs of and you can sign up for our newsletter there. Call us on our hotline, leave us a voicemail, 323 296 9955. You can email us, songs of at gmail.com. Basically, we're telling you to just engage with us. Just engage. Just write us, talk to us, love us. What do you think, David? Ask us questions. If you can't get enough of us and you think, these guys, why do they keep shutting up? They should just never shut up. Then listen to our other show, Never Shut Up, which you can find across all platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our show. If you're still with us, we very much appreciate it. We thank all of you, everybody out there. Remember to rate us and review us on iTunes. It really does help our search results. And anything else, David? I got nothing. What do you got? Nothing. Bye. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com.